If you would, please remain standing and let's open up our Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to back up just a little bit for context today, so we'll begin reading in chapter 2, starting in verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value. It is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Please be seated. Last week, Casey wrapped up chapter 2 of Romans. And in those two chapters, Paul has laid the foundation for his gospel presentation. Paul has presented the why of the gospel. Why do we need it? Why do we need a savior? Why do we even need saving? And what are we being saved from? This foundation is that God is perfectly just, and because of that, he must punish sin. As the creator and sustainer of the universe, God has the right and responsibility to judge his creation. This judgment brings about his righteous and perfect wrath, and it brings it about on people who deserve it. In chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we see who is deserving of God's wrath. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have made, so they are without excuse. Paul started with the sinfulness of the Gentiles. 
He started with the sinfulness of a culture that has absolutely suppressed the truth about God. They have valued their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. In verse 24 of chapter 1, it says, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts with impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And why did he do this? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. Because they did not see fit to acknowledge God for who he was, God gave them over to their unrighteousness, their evil, their malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, and the list goes on and on. God's righteous judgment will fall on all who do those things. Paul then moves on to address the moralist of their time. He speaks to those who would have looked at that past list of sins there and said, Amen, Paul. He's saying this to people who would judge others for their sins, but somehow find ways to overlook their own. And then Paul moved from the Gentiles to the Jews, who have received the laws and commands of the Lord. In verse 17 of chapter 2, Paul just flat out calls them out. He says, but if you yourself are a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of young, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? Why you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that they must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking it. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. And in chapter 2, verse 28, he says... For one is a Jew who is merely one, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision, circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and the circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit and not by the letter. So Paul has set up this foundation for his gospel presentation. Both Jews and Gentiles equally will sit under the righteous judgment of a holy God. All are without excuse, short of nothing but a direct intervention from a Savior. A direct intervention of a Messiah. Short of that, all will be judged according to their own works. If you read through, uh, through the accounts of Paul's missionary journeys in the book of Acts, you'll see a pattern emerge as Paul goes from city to city. In Acts 17, verse 2, it says, And Paul went in, and it was, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he, re he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He did this everywhere he went. You see it over and over again in Acts. He would go to the synagogues, or he would go to the sites where great thinkers of the time would gather. He would reason or debate with the Jews, he would reason or debate with the Gentiles. Even when Paul was arrested and on trial before Felix, it says that he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. 
as we move into the text the next couple of weeks, we get to see this reasoning. We get to see Paul's mind at work. We'll see him reasoning, almost holding a tiny debate in this letter. And these objections that we'll go through today and and next week is probably from his own experiences traveling and teaching. He knows how his readers will respond to this message that he's preaching. He knows the arguments they'll make, and he knows how they will defend their own position. And so it's amazing to me that Paul, before he even gets to Rome, before he even meets these people, is able to cut them off in his letter. So in our text today, Paul puts forward three objections that he intends to answer. The very first one we find in verse 1. It says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? So if everything that Paul has been saying about God's wrath is true, if chapters 1 and 2 are true, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? What advantage is there to being circumcised? This would have been a huge objection for unbelieving Jews. If Paul is right about God's wrath, then both the Jews and the Gentiles are equally under God's wrath. So the Jewish objection to these statements would have been about the Old Testament. They would have asked, didn't God choose Abraham? Didn't God choose Abraham's descendants? Didn't he make a covenant with his chosen people? If the Old Testament is right, then the Jews would have believed that Paul had to be wrong. But if we take a look at Paul's response to this objection, we'll see that they work together perfectly. There is no objection here. So the objection, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Paul responds, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Much in every way. Paul starts with an easy statement. Of course there are advantages to being a Jew. Of course there are advantages to circumcision. And he lists, but he just lists one in chapter 3. The Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. So before we dive into that particular advantage, I think it's fair to mention that Paul goes on in chapter 9 to list a long list of advantages for the Jews. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, it says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's discussing his love and the anguish that he feels for his brothers and sisters. He goes on in verse 4 to say, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. These are the advantages that the Jews have. They were adopted as sons and daughters of the Lord. They were given direct access to the divine glory of the Father himself. This was true on Mount Sinai. This was true in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. This was true in their temple worship. 
They were given the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all of these covenants based solely on the good pleasure of God. They were given the law. They were given temple worship. They were given the promises. They were given the patriarchs, the prophets. And ultimately, they were blessed with the human lineage of Christ. All of these things are advantages to the Jews, but none of these things in and of themselves can justify them before a holy God. Nothing apart from the working of the Holy Spirit through the word of God can bring anyone to salvation. Paul doesn't mention all of these advantages in chapter 3. He only provides the one, that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Greek behind the word oracles can be translated to mean the very words. So the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God himself. This is an express reference to the Old Testament scriptures. But to say the very words, it also says something about those Old Testament scriptures. He points to the Old Testament saying that the Old Testament is the very word of God himself. But even being entrusted with the oracles of God, Paul's position still stands. Both Jew and Greek are under the wrath of God and in need of a Savior. So Paul moves on in verse 3 of our text to the second question, or the second objection. It says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The objection here again is, if Jews can perish in unbelief and disobedience, wouldn't that prove God to be unfaithful? Given God's eternal covenant with his people and all the promises of the Old Testament, if Paul is right, then that must make God unfaithful. Paul's response in verse 4 is once again a very simple response. He says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul's Paul's response starts with by no means, or may it never be. The word, it's actually two words that are used here in Greek, are may, I'm going to mispronounce this terribly, I'm sorry, may genito. This is a very strong word in Greek. It can be translated as absolutely not. Of course not. It would be unthinkable. This is something that is never, it can never be. The objection being raised here is absurd, and it's unthinkable, and it's unbelievable. And his response is based on the answer to the first question. It's unthinkable because they have the very breathed-out word of God. If we go on in Paul's response, he says, Let God be true to everyone. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If every single human being were found to be a liar, which Scripture actually says is true, 
But if every single human is a liar, God is still found to be truthful. Any man that would find God to be untruthful or unfaithful would have to take the entirety of God's self-revelation. They would have to take the entirety of Scripture and say it's fallible and untrue. Any man who would do such a thing as that would then once again be judged a liar. And Paul supports this position from Scripture, saying, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. As Paul so often does, he supports his theology using the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 51 here. Let, let's, let's turn there real quick. That's Psalms 51. We'll, we'll start reading in verse 1. So this, just for context here, this is a Psalm of David. This is right after Nathan has confronted David about his sin of adultery and murder. And this is David's response. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In this psalm, David confesses the despicable sin that he's found himself in. And he confesses that God himself is the only true measure of goodness. The word of God is its only verification that it needs. And that the justice of God is the only justification that there is. Like the first objection, Paul is setting a foundation to more fully answer this objection later on. As a matter of fact, this objection is so critical to Paul, it takes Romans 9, 10, and 11 to fully answer it. We don't have time to fully cover this answer from that, but I think it's important to provide at least just a little overview. So in the first half of Romans 9, Romans 9, Paul teaches that God is sovereign in all things and is just in all things, even in his passing over of the Jews for a time. In the second half of Romans 9, Romans 9, God prophesied that Israel would reject Christ and Gentiles would be grafted in. In the first half of Romans 10, the grafting in of the Gentiles was actually a good thing for Israel. Because it brought about their jealousy. And in some cases, it led them to faith. In Romans 11, a remnant of the Jews would believe and be saved. And the Lord will fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. So in our text, Paul's answer starts so simply. But it expresses the absurdity of the idea that God could be unfaithful. This is something that the ethnic Jews would agree with. This is something that the believing Jews would agree with. This is something that believing Gentiles would agree with. It is absurd 
to think that God would be unfaithful. So continuing on, Paul's final objection is addressed in two questions. In verse 5 of our text, it says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Here we have the age-old objection to God. If God shows his love, his mercy, and his grace through the salvation of sinners, and in order to do that, it requires sin, how can God ultimately judge us for what ultimately leads to good? God punishing sinners purely for the purposes of showing his glory must make God unrighteous. So unlike our first two objections, Paul doesn't spend an entire chapter later on addressing this. He provides a very short but very fiery response to this. He says, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? Paul treats this question with the contempt it absolutely deserves. If there is a creation, there is a creator. And if there is a creator, he has the right to set the moral standards for his creation. And if there are moral standards, then God has every right to judge us based on those moral standards. Not only does he have the right, but if God is perfectly good and just, then he must judge us by those moral standards. To question God's unrighteousness and his judging is nothing short of a complete failure to understand who God is. Paul doubles down on, on that last question in verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the most extreme example of the objections listed in our text. And one that Paul freely admits, people have accused him of teaching this. It completely dismisses the idea of God's judgment and actually encourages so-called believers to just continue on in their sin. There's a fancy theological term for this idea. It's called antinomianism. But James Montgomery Boyce kind of explained this idea this way. He said, if we are saved by grace through faith, entirely apart from any works of the law, then what does it matter whether we live righteous lives or not? Indeed, isn't it good that we sin because then God is given even greater glory as our Savior? This is a disgustingly evil idea. And it goes against what Christ himself said. Christ said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul dedicates the entirety of Romans 6 to arguing against this objection. And if you'll bear with me, I want to turn to Romans 6 and, and, let, and let's read the whole chapter because this is such an evil way of thinking and no one can address it better than Paul does in chapter 6. So Romans 6, we're going to begin in verse 1. What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set set free from sin. Now, if we had died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death is no longer, no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, or let no sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourself to God as those who have been brought from life to death and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Paul goes on through the rest of chapter 6 answering the question, what, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. And once again, goes through this idea really takes this question of should we continue sinning because God gets the glory in our salvation. And just destroys that idea. Because for those that Christ has saved, they've been brought from death to life, and they have been set free from sin. Church family, it'd be easy for us to look at these objections and think, oh, how, how silly of those Jews at the time. But these are issues that we still see today, even in the church. There are those, and there may be some here today, that would say, I, I attend church. I'm a church member. I said a prayer when I was younger. I've been baptized. I take the Lord's Supper. Are all of these things good things? Absolutely. But let me tell you now, if you're depending on your religiousness to save you, to make you good enough, to justify you before God, and I want to be very clear with this, these things don't save you. They don't. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name 
and do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. John Piper calls salvation a decisive work of God alone. It's not an accident. It's not something we do. God decisively chooses us and saves us. In a few weeks, we'll get to Romans 3, 23. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your doing, it's a gift of God. Our religiousness doesn't save us. This sermon today doesn't save you. It is purely a work of Jesus Christ. We've also seen teachings in the church. Many times they're absolutely false teachings that cause people to question God's faithfulness and justice. We've all seen instances of this kind of teaching that either misunderstands who God is or just flat out misrepresents who God is. The prosperity gospel is taking hold across the world and it's doing it in places like Africa and China and Philippines. The largest single church congregation in the world is in South Korea with over 800,000 members. What happens to these people that sit under this type of teaching and then find themselves sick, find themselves with cancer, find themselves with a terminal illness, or find themselves on the street because they're not rich? These people are left to question either their own faithfulness or God's, or most likely both. When we share the gospel, one of the most common objections that we hear is how can God be good when there's so much evil in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? That needs to be explained by us. We have the answer to it in Scripture. Finally, how often do we see people, including ourselves, desperately trying to justify their sin? How many times do we try and justify lies that we tell? We say, ah, the, the ends justify the means. A little white lie doesn't hurt. I'm going to lie to someone to spare them their feelings. I, God, God's got to be okay with that. How many times do we try to justify our own anger? 
the most common way, at least for me, I just blame it on the people that made me angry. There are times that we also just drape ourselves in the idea that somehow our anger is righteous. Our anger is the Lord's anger. How many times do we hide behind God's sovereignty? Absolutely hide behind the idea of God's sovereignty to justify our own lack of spiritual discipline. We try to justify these things. We, ju- we try to justify our pride, our lust, our covetousness, our laziness. I could go on for a long time. All of these issues in our text today were absolutely prevalent in Paul's day. But they're alive and well today, too. This is why I believe that Paul takes nearly three chapters, three chapters to lay this foundation that we've all sinned. We've all failed to meet God's perfect standard of righteousness. Without a Savior, we are deserving of God's wrath because we can never be good enough. We can never be moral enough. We can never be religious enough to justify ourselves before God. We are all in desperate need of the gospel. So, I'll, t- I'll tell you today, and, and kids, I really want you to hear this. If you are hearing this today and this terrifies you, good. Because it is terrifying. But there's good news. That in God's perfect wisdom and his loving kindness and his endless grace and mercy, he made a way for us to be justified before the Lord. He sent his son to be a willing sacrifice. Being fully God and fully man, he did what none of us could do. And I mean none of us. From the time of Adam till the time of whoever the last man on earth is, or woman. Christ did what no one was able to do. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father. In doing so, all of this wrath that Paul has been talking about for three chapters, all of it, Christ took it on himself. All of the wrath we've been talking about for weeks, Christ took it on himself. And if that weren't enough, he imputes his righteousness to us. We were deserving of God's wrath. We earned it. Not only does Christ take it on himself, but he imputes his perfect righteousness to believers. And that's what justifies us before God. Not our own righteousness, not our religiousness, not any work that we do. It is Christ's righteousness that stands before the Lord. I would beg you today, repent and believe. For those that have believed, we need this constant reminder of these facts. We need to make sure that when we present the gospel, 
we also share the reason that people need the gospel. As I, as I think we've said before for a couple of weeks, a gospel without sin and God's wrath, a gospel that doesn't put the urgency, and I'm not talking about just slapping someone in the face and you're a sinner. I'm talking about the urgency that's in place that we have sinned against a holy God and that we deserve his wrath. If that is not included in the gospel message, it is not the gospel message. So I would beg you, first and foremost, share the gospel. Because we've spent weeks now, we're going to spend a couple more weeks, but we have spent weeks talking about God's wrath. Paul has broken down from the Gentiles to the Jews to the moralists to just, really, you could just go Gentiles and Jews because in, in the way of Scripture, that's everyone. Paul has built this foundation, reasoned in his letter, and shown that we are all guilty. Next week, Casey is going to look at the text where Paul kind of sums up this point. But we need to share the gospel because there is that urgency out there. And we need to be bold enough to tell people why they need saving. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, You've continued to show us grace and mercy that we don't deserve, Lord. The fact that we can have the very breathed out words of, from you. That we can so freely meet together. That we can so freely read scripture in our own language, Lord. We thank you for that. I would ask you to continue your work in convicting us of our sin, leading us to repentance. For those that have not placed their trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, Lord, I would pray that you would convict them today, that you would call them to repentance. Lord, I ask you to bless the rest of our worship, Lord, may it be a sweet aroma to you. As we sing, Lord, let us do it with a joyful heart because we're singing about you, Lord. I ask you to prepare us for the taking of the Lord's Supper that you give us a reminder, Lord, that you put the weight of the meaning of the Lord's Supper on our hearts. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.